Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. It's the last time I'll be asking you to turn to Acts 15. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and today we're going to look at a new team and a new journey. A new team and a new journey. Our main text is Acts 15, verse 40 through chapter 16, verse 5. Well, let's begin by reading our text from last week, uh, which was verses 36 through 41 of Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, starting in verse 36, it says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Um, I, I strongly encourage you. Usually I don't put such a, an emphasis on maybe listening to a past teaching or something, but I strongly encourage you, if you missed last week's study in those verses as we looked at a study I titled When Godly People Disagree, please listen to that message. Listen to it. Not, not only is it timely and applicable for what we've been experiencing in this season that we've been in, but guys, we need to be encouraged and exhorted and equipped to handle disagreement and division in a Christ-like and Christ-honoring way and and really have such a, a firm resolve that we reject participating in any sort of divisiveness. Again, looking at that portion of scripture from last week, we're not told who was in the right or in the wrong in that situation. But clearly their sharp contention was not how the Lord would want them to handle their disagreement, yet God in his grace was working in spite of both Paul and Barnabas's issues, and he was going to use this to get his gospel out even more. The one team was going to become two teams that would take the gospel out into two different directions and have even greater effectiveness. But I want us to revisit the last two verses of chapter 15 as we begin to see this new ministry team form and this new missionary journey begin, because really, uh, verse 40 is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, which is going to take us all the way in through almost the end of chapter 18. And so read verses 40 and 41 with me. It says, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. As a reminder, because Silas is going to become a, a prominent member of this team, and we're going to see him a lot more often. Silas, also known as Silvanus in the New Testament, was likely a Hellenistic Jew. He had a Greek background to him. He had Roman citizenship, just like Paul. He was a leading man among the brethren in Jerusalem. 
He was called by the Lord to a specific role in the early church as a prophet. He was chosen with another man by the council to go with Paul and Barnabas to help deliver the council's letter to the Gentile believers in Antioch. He was used by the Lord to exhort and strengthen the church there. He was willing and available for whatever God wanted to do with his life. And he's going to be a faithful traveling companion and fellow minister with Paul, who Paul also will mention in a few of his letters, Second Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians. And he's going to be someone who later is going to come alongside the Apostle Peter in, and is going to be his amanuensis, or is just a big word for, he was the dude who wrote things down as Peter said what he wanted written. He's going to be the guy that Peter's going to go, and, and here's, here's Sylvanus, and he's, he's writing this thing. He's here with me. Silas became this man for us that we can look at and go, gosh, you know what? We saw Barnabas begin in sort of a leading role, and we saw him easily take sort of a back seat, in, in a sense, to, to the leadership role that God gave to Paul as they started out on their first missionary journey. And Silvanus, Silas, he was perfectly content with being the guy who was willing to go, what's in your heart? Let's do it. What's God saying? Let's do it. And Silas is really just a solid godly man as we're going to see kind of moving forward in the book of acts as i said last week they were commended by their brethren to the grace of god not because paul was viewed as the one in the right and barnabas the one in the wrong because but because paul and silas were you know heading back through syria and cilicia with the letter from the jerusalem council a letter that would help to firmly establish the gentile believers in those regions in the grace of god they were commended to the grace of god because the grace of god was at the forefront of what was contained in that letter and the kind of ministry that was going to be needed as this false sort of legalism was being brought in you know what jesus is great believe in jesus but you need more to be saved you need circumcision to be saved you need the law of moses to be saved and and it was really a a uh, an undermining of the gospel of grace. And so they were needing to be commended to the grace of God because the grace of God was at the forefront of what their ministry was going to be all about. But now as this new missionary team begins to form and this new missionary venture begins, we find Paul taking Silas with, with him as they go through Syria, and this is where Antioch was located, and sort of geographically, if you know where Israel, the nation of Israel is, north of that would be uh, Syria, and heading up uh, into uh, sort of the, the northern part of the north, uh, east part of the Mediterranean Sea, and that's kind of where they were heading with this letter from the council seeking to establish the believers in God's grace. They headed northwest into Cilicia, which is where Paul's hometown of Tarsus was located. Cilicia being part of Asia Minor. Minor? Minor? Asia Minor. Get you here and get you here. Asia Minor. Anyways, you ever remember that old A1 commercial? I digress. 
This is where they would begin to hit really the two furthest stops that Paul and Barnabas made eastward on their first missionary journey, sort of in central Turkey. Paul and Silas went through Syria and Cilicia to check on the spiritual state of the believers, to, to deliver the Jerusalem Council's letter. And really, their desire was to see the churches in these different areas strengthened. Strengthened. Isn't that a great thing that the churches were strengthened by these things? But something else stood out to me in this. There was a, a strengthening, no doubt, that would come from just receiving or reading the contents of of the council's letter, which is clear from how the church in Syrian Antioch rejoiced over the letter's encouragement after reading it. But there was also a strengthening that would come from Paul and Silas actually just being there physically with the believers when they read it. A strengthening that would come after they read it as Paul and Silas would expound upon the letter and exhort the believers in what they just read a, a strengthening that would come by way of what we would call the ministry of presence you know as much of a blessing technology technology has been over the past year and a half to help people stay connected and encouraged and strengthened in the lord through virtual means that ministry of presence cannot be properly substituted you know this is reinforced for us in what paul wrote to the roman believers in romans chapter 1 listen to what he shared with them in chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 of that letter he said for i long to see you that i, I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul longed to see those believers in person because there were some things he believed God wanted to do through his life in ministering to them. He says imparting some spiritual gifts, uh, further establishing them in their faith, but also because Paul believed that God wanted to use them to encourage him and that's kind of an interesting thought isn't it because when we think of paul and peter and 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 john and just some of these prominent apostles we don't think of them as men needing to be ministered to we think of them being the ones who did all the ministering they're the ones who strengthened everybody else they're the ones that encouraged everybody else and yet paul's going I believe God wants to use you to encourage me. I need to be encouraged. I need that ministry of presence in my own life, Paul would say, no doubt. And, and these things are only going to happen if we are around each other. If we're making that time. These are things that a letter couldn't adequately accomplish that necessitated believers intentionally spending time with one another seeking to minister to each other. And these are things God wants to do among us so that we as a church and individually as believers are strengthened. 
what kind of spiritual gifts, what kind of establishing in the faith does not happen? Because for some, they come with sort of a consumer mindset. I'm just looking for what I can get. How are people going to minister to me? How am I going to be blessed? How did the worship impact me? How did the teaching pique my interest? Instead of coming, seeking to give, seeking to be used by the Lord, being sensitive to the spirit of God, being willing to step out in faith, looking with eyes of faith to those around us to see who we can encourage, who we can strengthen, who we can come alongside and and uplift and uphold because, guys, you know we all need it. We need that ministry of presence in our lives. We need God to use others in our lives. There's a mutual encouraging that God is wanting to bring about in our midst on Sunday mornings, meeting at a coffee shop during the week, a women's fellowship, Jews getting together to pray, Tuesday night prayer, whatever that looks like, there is opportunities for God to use somebody in your life and, and for God to use you in somebody else's life. There's mutual encouragement. There's, there's spiritual gifts. There's an establishing. There's a making firm in the faith that God's wanting to accomplish. But are we accessible? Or are we so busy that we just don't have the time? Or are we just so caught up with ourselves that maybe we're missing out on some of those things? There's a strengthening that God's desiring to work in each of our lives, but know this, even if you are a new believer, God can use you to be a source of strengthening and encouragement for somebody else. He can make you a blessing in someone else's life. We're never too young or old, both in age or in spiritual years spent in relationship with the Lord to be useful in his service. Amen? All right, cool. Just making sure we're all on the same page. Moving forward. Paul and Silas, they're going through Syria and Cilicia. They're traveling northwest into Asia Minor, the uh, eastern section of Turkey. They're strengthening the churches. They're delivering the council's letter, but their team is about to expand even more. Let's move into chapter 16 and read verses 1 and 2. It says in chapter 16, verse 1, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. You ever wonder if like every time Paul drew near to Lystra again, like he started to have flashbacks of when he was stoned and drug out of the city? You ever been around somewhere like locationally that had some really strong memories attached to it? You see a place, you hear of a place, you drive through a place, and all of a sudden things start coming back to your mind, and maybe it's really bad things. It could be really good things, but it can elicit some really strong emotions in us when something really strong or dramatic or really damaging happens to us. And that 
uh, if that was Paul, we don't get any hint of it here. That, that doesn't mean that Paul was invincible. He didn't have feelings. He didn't care about things because we know that there were times in Paul's life where he was fearful. Where he needed to be encouraged, where he felt like he was beyond hope. Where he felt broken down. But here he's just coming back into the same area again that really so much in a negative way happened in his life years earlier. Lystra and Derby were cities of Lyconia that Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey had fled to from Iconium. They had preached the gospel at after learning of a plot to kill them. It was in Lystra that the people in the city, after Paul healed a crippled man, began to shout loudly that the gods had come down to them in the likeness of men, calling Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes. They started to bring the animals out to make sacrifices at the gate of the city. Paul and Barnabas at first didn't really know what was going on. They were speaking in the Lyconian dialect. But all of a sudden they catch on. They're trying to, to preach to the people like, look, guys, we're men just like you. We're human beings. We're not gods. Don't sacrifice to us. And in fact, you need to turn away from these false gods to the living God. Trying to stop the people from sacrificing to them, but having a really hard time of doing so. And after that, some of the gospel-rejecting Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra. They caught up with where Paul and Barnabas were. They persuaded the multitudes there in the city who had just hailed these two men as gods to stone Paul, drag him out of the city, and leave him for dead. But God was merciful. He spared Paul's life. He enabled Paul to miraculously get up and go back into Lystra and the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby where they preached the gospel and made many disciples. It was in Lystra, the place where Paul was first hailed as a god, then stoned and left for dead, that we now find this certain disciple there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. No mention of him being a believer. It was likely that Timothy grew up not only in an ethnic, ethnically diverse household, but in a religiously diverse household. But this also tells us that the seeds of the gospel that had been sown in that area years earlier had taken root in people's hearts and were bearing fruit. That not only had people in this pagan culture gotten saved, they, these new believers had been discipled through the churches that had been planted in these various areas, and these disciples were seeking to make disciples. They were just living out the Great Commission. They had gotten saved, and they knew that the next step was to be discipled, to grow in their faith, and, and to continue that cycle of making disciples. Disciples make disciples. As is the old saying, healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. 
when we're being fed, when we're, when we're being strengthened, the natural sort of progression is that more sheep are going to be made. We have that in a different sense with babies coming into this church here in the near future. But we get to see it in people who are dead and their sin and trespasses coming to new life in Jesus Christ. Timothy was this certain disciple in the city of Lystra. No doubt poured into by others. And it seems from Paul's second letter to Timothy that Timothy's grandmother and mother got saved first before Timothy. Check out what Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 where he writes about this. He said, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Notice, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Even if Paul was the one who got to lead them all to a saving knowledge of Jesus in one of his two stops in the city of Lystra earlier, where he preached the gospel on his first missionary journey, I'm sure that Timothy's grandmother Lois and mother Eunice's faith made an impact on Timothy coming to faith in Jesus too. And this is a great word for any family member present, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, older brothers and sisters and cousins even. Guys, we all have a powerful sphere of influence with the younger people in our families. And God wants to use us to share the gospel with them and to disciple them. The, the faith was first in, in Lois and Eunice. No doubt that, that faith was shared with Timothy. We know even from one of the other places that Paul writes that he says Timothy knew the scriptures even from growing up, that he grew up in a household where, where his mom would teach him the scriptures. But there was also this other element of his dad being a Greek, not being a follower of Christ. Timothy not knowing Christ personally, where he needed to hear the gospel. He needed to see the gospel lived out in his mom's life, his grandma's life. And what a powerful thing when God is able to use our lives as an example. When we live the gospel out in our homes. When we're able to instill those things in our children and grandchildren and in nephews and nieces and cousins. To say Jesus is real. Jesus loves you. To share the word of God with them. Guys, do not discount the kind of power and influence that each of us has especially with the younger generation, especially with those that are younger than us. God's hand, his favor, his anointing was upon Timothy's life as a, as a godly young man, which is clear 
in how he was spoken well of by the brethren, meaning he had a good reputation among the believers who were at Lystra and Iconium. Timothy's heart, his, his devotion, his faithfulness to Jesus was seen by other believers, and it must have been evident to Paul, too, as he spent time with Timothy. You know, Timothy is not only going to become an assistant to Paul, like John Mark was before with Paul and Barnabas, he's also going to become a trusted and useful ministry partner to Paul, traveling with Paul in his second missionary journey, this one that we're getting into, and also his third missionary journey. He's a man who Paul is going to send into areas, into troubled areas even, to minister and send reports back to Paul. He's a man whose heart was knit together in such a powerful way with Paul that in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he spoke of Timothy as saying, I have no one else like-minded like Timothy who would sincerely care for the Philippian believer's state, reminding the Philippian church that they knew Timothy's proven character, that as a son with his father, Timothy served with Paul in the gospel. But before any of that took place, Timothy was just a certain disciple who was faithfully worshiping and serving Jesus among other believers in the city of Lystra and the surrounding areas. And much of what we're going to see the Lord do with Timothy's life is going to be a result of how God used Paul in Timothy's life to further disciple him and give him opportunities to step out in faith and be used by the Lord, walking in those good works that the Lord had for Timothy to walk in, in his own life. So this is this, is this man, Timothy, that we're being introduced to right now. But let's continue on and read verses 3 and 4. It says, verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. You know, coming off everything that we just spent time looking at in most of chapter 15, verse 3 might strike us as a really strange move for Paul to make and a, and a contradiction to things that he already wrote and what transpired with the Judaizers prior to this. Let me remind you what Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1, and, 1 through 3, where he details the situation that happened when the false brethren came to Syrian Antioch with their false authority and false message that, that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. He wrote there, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, he said, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went, by, went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Notice, yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Titus, who was a, a Greek, a, a Gentile, was not compelled to, to be circumcised, nor did Paul compel him to be circumcised when those false brethren came to Syrian Antioch saying that unless the Gentiles were circumcised and kept the law of Moses, they could not be saved. 
because him being circumcised would have been taken as a sign that those false brethren were right, which was not the case. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised because circumcision wasn't going to add anything to his right standing before God, which he already had by grace through faith in Jesus. Now, several years later, we find Paul now taking Timothy or wanting Timothy to go with him. Timothy being a uncircumcised half Jew and half Gentile disciple of Jesus wanting to bring him along in his ministry team. And he now takes Timothy and he circumcises him. We're told because of the Jews who were in that region for they all knew that his father was Greek. And we might think, Paul, what is the deal, man? Like you had this huge argument with the false brethren who came and taught the Gentile believers in Syria and Antioch that they had to be circumcised to be saved. But now you're making Timothy get circumcised because of some Jews who know that his father's a Greek. Like why? And also. Sorry, Timothy, like like that's that stinks for you. <laughs> like that's not fun. Well. Paul's not contradicting himself here. We have to understand that the situations with Titus and Timothy are are different. Titus not being circumcised as a Greek, as a Gentile, was a was a matter of doctrinal importance because circumcision was not going to gain him justification. To preserve right or true doctrine when it came to the the issue of salvation, of justification, Titus could not bend to what the Judaizers wanted and be circumcised. That's why he wasn't compelled. That's why he didn't do it years earlier. Here, Paul's not having Timothy circumcised because he's now changed his mind and believes circumcision is necessary in order to be saved. No, Timothy is already saved, and him being circumcised isn't a, a, a means of adding anything to his salvation. Paul having him circumcised is not a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of evangelistic effectiveness. It's not a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of evangelistic effectiveness, removing any possible hindrances to the gospel going out and saving unbelieving Jews who could be offended by Timothy, who they knew had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, not being circumcised. But understand this. Timothy could have said no. He's not a five-year-old here. Timothy is a young man, probably in his late teens by this point. He could have said, I'm not getting circumcised and tied like the bottom of his robe to like his legs to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. He could have bolted in the other direction. He could have said, I don't have to be circumcised. I mean, check out the letter that you're delivering. It says that that wasn't a commandment. To be circumcised in order to be saved. I don't have to be circumcised. It's not biblically something I even have to do or need to do. 
He could say, I'm saved without being circumcised. He could even say, you know what? God's been using me back in my hometown without being circumcised. Like I could just cruise back. I'll stay in Lystra. God will keep using me here. And I don't have to go through the pain of being circumcised and as, a, as an adult man. He could have said even, you know what, if other Jews are offended, that's their problem, not mine. But he didn't. Instead, we find a willingness in Timothy to lay down his own personal freedoms, not to mention doing something that would have caused him a lot of physical pain. So that there would be nothing potentially hindering the gospel from going out, removing any potential obstacles that would offend an unbeliever and keep them from putting their faith in Jesus Christ, even if that meant Timothy doing something that wasn't doctrinally necessary. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't doctrinally necessary for Timothy to be circumcised, but he did it for the sake of the gospel. Out of love for lost people, Timothy willingly laid down his rights. And I can't help but wonder how many of us would be willing to do what he did. I think a lot of us might say some of those other things. God keeps, I'm already saved. I don't want to. God's using me right now without this thing that you're wanting me to do so that others aren't offended. You know, it seems in our day that many Christians are more determined and fired up about standing up for or holding on to their personal or national rights than laying down their rights for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel and in love being willing to lay down something that might potentially hinder an unbeliever from coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul taking and having Timothy circumcised was rooted in Paul's love for lost people. And it was rooted in the seriousness in which he took the salvation of people's souls. I mean, Paul was hardcore. It's a pretty hardcore move. Timothy, you're getting circumcised, man. You want to come along with me? Got to happen, dude. Like, that's pretty hardcore. Like, how does one dude tell another dude that he has to be circumcised? That just... That's pretty gnarly. Like, Paul was a gnarly dude. He was so hardcore even that at one point in his letter to the Church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, look, I will never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. Like, Paul took the, the spiritual state of unbelievers and he placed it on such a high pedestal above whatever rights that he had, he would lay it all down for the sake of Christ. It didn't matter. Even if it was a, a biblically, doctrinally, uh, doctrinally sourced sort of thing for him, he was willing to lay those things down to serve somebody else, to bring the gospel to somebody else. Check out what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. He said there, For though I am free from all men, 
I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Man, that's powerful, isn't it? Again, Paul always placed the spiritual well-being of others above his own personal rights and preferences, becoming all things to all men in order to save some. His life was bound up in doing anything possible except anything sinful to win people to Jesus Christ. But isn't that just following the example of Jesus? I mean, if we think about rights and privileges that are laid down, Jesus, the creator of all, king of all, that he would become a man. He would subject himself to birth. (laughs) He would subject himself to being in a sinful world, though he was without sin. Being the one who owned the cattle on a thousand hills, being born into a a poor family. The one who always knew perfect fellowship, being subjected to brothers who no doubt hated him because he was perfect. Not like we think sometimes our children are perfect and you know, another sibling might be mad at them because of that. He was perfect. He was rejected. He, he subjected himself to being rejected by those that he came to save. He su- subjected himself to... To, to being hungry. He subjected himself to, to going to a, a criminal's death on a Roman cross. Talk about laying down rights. Jesus exemplified that for the sake of reaching people with the good news of who he was. Jesus did that. Our example in laying down Things for the sake of the gospel is is sourced in who our Jesus is, in what he did, and how he lived, and how he gave himself. And I would ask us today, you know, what might we be holding on to today that Jesus is asking us to lay down for the sake of the gospel? Things maybe that are hindering our effectiveness to reach people with the love and gospel of Jesus, or maybe not even unsaved people, or, or maybe it's things that are stumbling other believers in our lives. You know, even as we see in verse 4, this letter, these decrees from the council at Jerusalem that they were delivering as they went through these cities, the, the decrees were asking the Gentile believers to lay down some personal freedoms that they had. The Gentile believers being asked to abstain from certain dietary uh, things that would 
be a norm in their culture, things that were not issues of salvation for them. They were being asked to abstain from certain dietary things so that nothing potentially would hinder or damage fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers within the church and so that the witness of the Gentile believers would not be hindered towards unbelieving Jews that they would share the gospel with. But these things that they were delivering to these Gentile believers in Asia Minor were not received pridefully. We don't see them saying, you know what, don't tell me what I can or can't eat. Isn't that how we kind of respond sometimes when someone comes and threatens our rights, our freedoms? Don't tell me. If someone came and told me, you know what, you can't can't eat that anymore. We'd be like, who are you? You can't tell me you pay my pay for my food. No, like I work to eat cheese. I work to have gluten free items. I work to have vegan cupcakes. I work to buy as much meat as my heart could desire, whatever that is. But God forbid that someone would ever come and infringe upon any of those rights that we have. Right. We might say, you know what? Forget it, man. Like. The Jews can get over it if we were in these Gentiles' position. They didn't receive it pridefully. They, they weren't, these decree, decrees weren't seen as a burdensome weight on their spiritual lives either. We don't see them responding by going, this is too much. It's too hard. You know, why do I have to? They, did, they didn't do that either. Instead, wherever this letter was delivered and read, all we're told is that the churches were strengthened. They were strengthened. That tells me that these letters, these decrees were received with joy. They were thankful to hear these things. They were thankful even for the things that were that that they were supposed to abstain from knowing that those things were not in order to be saved, but things to just keep the fellowship within the church and their witness to believer, un, to unbelievers. And now look at verse 5. It says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. This is a, another one of those powerful progress reports that Luke gives us here. And guys, I pray that this is what God does continually with us here, that we will continually be made strong and firm and stable in the faith, in Jesus and our relationship with him. And that we would increase in number daily, abounding in spiritual growth and depth and fruitfulness and, and boldness personally and corporately, but also abounding in numerical growth as each of us takes the gospel to those that God has placed around us and those people getting saved and added into Jesus' church and being discipled. This is God's desire. This is how he's designed it to work. He could have sent angels and maybe done a lot better job, but he chooses to send us who aren't always very angelic. who don't always have 
the right words, who don't always speak very eloquently, who forget the Bible verse that we've been memorizing to share with that person. Dang it. I had it. We stumble over our words. We put our foot in our mouth. And yet we are the ones that God is in his grace and in his marvelous wisdom has said, I want to take you and I want to use you to bring my gospel to lost people, to help strengthen the church. You know, the strengthening of the church is not just my job. It's all of our jobs. Each of us has a role to play. Each of us has a purpose in the body of Christ. A role to fulfill giftings that God has given us. Backgrounds and experiences. Different things that we all bring to the table of the Lord in the house of the Lord. Even our own baggage, we all bring all of that comes with us. And in the midst of all of that, God wants to do something much bigger. To strengthen. To empower. To revive and renew and to restore, to, to send out. Because there's a world around us that, are, that is needing the Jesus that you and I already have, needing the salvation that we've already received, needing the hope that you and I already get to rest in. There's a lot here for us to, to really meditate on and seek to apply to our lives, and I pray we do in this coming week. But... Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we prepare to take communion together. First Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We take communion, the Lord's Supper, with hearts of remembrance, gratitude, worship, looking back to what Jesus has done for us through the cross, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us. But we also partake with a spirit of proclamation and rejoicing. We look forward to Jesus' return. We proclaim his death until he comes. These things remind us our Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He hasn't left us here to not come back. He's coming for us. One day that trumpet is going to blast. 
and in the moment and the twinkling of an eye, you and I who remain are going to be caught up together with those that have gone before us and Jesus in the clouds to forever be with our Lord. It's exciting stuff. We have a hope, you and I. But look, if you don't know Jesus personally, know that he wants to save you. You know, Jesus could have just could have dropped a scroll out of the sky and, and shipped it across the, across the atmosphere, all over the world. And there could have been a, a blaring voice that said, this is the word of God for you. And it could have gone over. So everyone would recognize, man, this scroll is from God. It's clearly from God. We don't ever see scrolls flying through the air. We don't ever hear voices in the sky. It's got to be from God. And then God drops down one of those scrolls for every living being on the planet. And, and it's, it's all about Jesus' life. It's all about who Jesus would be if he came. It, it would not have the same impact had Jesus not physically came here and walked among us, tabernacled among us, to not only tell us how much he loves us, but to show it, to demonstrate it. By going to the cross when he didn't have to. It should have been us that took the penalty for our own sin. But in, instead of us going and paying the penalty, he paid it for us. He took our place. He was our perfect spotless lamb, our substitute, our atoning sacrifice. That's Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus personally this morning, know this morning that your sins are separating you from God. God's not the one trying to distance him from, from himself from you. Your sin is distancing yourself from him. And the only way to have that distance removed for that reconciliation to take place is for you to humble yourself, repent of your sin, and say, Jesus, I put my faith in you. Forgive me and save me. And if you'll do that, the Bible says you will be saved. And so if that's anybody this morning, I'm going to ask you to make a bold move and stand where you're at if that's you, because I want to be able to pray for you. If there's anybody here this morning, you're going, look, that's me. I want my sins forgiven. I want my guilt to be erased. I want that hope of eternity. All right, well, in a space of believers then this morning we're going to end our time before we close in the songs by taking the worship elements together if you guys grab your bread and your juice let's pray lord god we thank you for your word this morning lord we want to grow Lord, we want to grow in greater Christ-likeness, Lord. God, we want to have humble hearts before you, Lord. We want to view other people the way that you would have us to. Lord, putting other people's spiritual state above our own personal rights. God, whatever that is, Lord, create in us, Lord, a, a zeal, a passion for you. 
Lord, that like Paul, we would do everything except sin to reach people with your gospel that that people would be saved. Lord, help us. Help us to have the reality of, of, of hell and judgment in the front of our minds that, that people who don't know you each day are, are dying and going to hell because of their sin. But Lord, your gospel is the remedy. Your gospel is, is what will save them and, and, and take them out of the kingdom of, of darkness and trans, transfer them into your marvelous light. Lord, it's your gospel that will make dead people alive. Lord, would we have a greater passion and boldness to share you with others. Lord, would we have your love for other people. And God, lead us in your love in these days. Lord, as we take the communion elements this morning, we consider the bread, Lord, that you allowed your body to be broken, your your body being, being uh, Lord, brutally massacred, scourged and beaten and nailed to that Roman cross, Lord, that you did that. And Lord, for us, we are to take the bread in remembrance of you, in remembrance of what you did, Lord. And so we remember your body that was given for us this morning. And so let's take the bread together. And Jesus, thank you that as you hung on that cross, Lord, you took the wrath that was meant for us. Lord, that Jesus, you paid our debt in full. That Jesus, your blood has brought about forgiveness of sins and a brand new covenant of grace that each one of us can live in. Jesus, thank you for willingly laying down your life for us. Jesus, we remember your blood this morning that was shed for our forgiveness, our salvation, our justification, our redemption. We take the juice now together. Now the worship team come back up. Lord God, we thank you also. But Jesus, you promised to come again for us. Lord, as we take communion, we also are to proclaim your death until you come. We're thankful, Jesus, that our hope is not limited to this life, but Lord, also for the next. Jesus, help us to be those who proclaim you with every ounce of our being, with, with whatever breath that we have in our lungs, Lord, that we would tell others about what you've done for us. Lord, that we wouldn't be shy, we wouldn't be timid, we wouldn't be fearful, but Lord, that we would have a boldness about our lives. Lord, we recognize our own need for you. Lord, you've called us to 
Lord, be those who make disciples, disciples who make disciples. Lord, we see at the same time, Lord, that we can't do that without you. Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your power. Lord, would you strengthen us and establish us in the faith even more. Lord, equip us, Lord, so that we can be your ambassadors, Lord, here in this world, Lord Jesus, rightly representing you. Lord, we're thankful for you. God, we praise you. And Lord, we do that now too as we sing these songs of praise. Lord, would these things flow from a place of response to all that you poured into us through your word, God, this time spent this morning, Lord, where we would we not hold back, Lord, in our worship of you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.